Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues in the series, A Life That Pleases God. You know, as we work our way through Hebrews chapter 11, we see examples of those who demonstrated what faith is. What is faith? Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things that we cannot see. Faith is like a relay race. You run the race, but you also run the race with someone. How well you finish the race depends on how well you run with your team. So how well are you running? If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, Faith Finishes Well. Go ahead and open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We are resuming our series on uh, a life that pleases God. And that's what Hebrews 11 is meant there to show us how to do just that. It tells us in verse 6 that without faith it's impossible to please God, not hard, but impossible. That God intends for us not just to exercise faith one time at an altar where we recite a prayer and we move on with the rest of our life, what we really feel like doing is just living for ourselves. God intends for us to continue to live by faith, that faith is not just a one-time event, but that it's an ongoing thing that we exhibit where we put our trust in him, we daily live by faith in trusting in God, doing life his way, not our way. Hebrews chapter 11, we define faith, and then the rest of the chapter, God isn't just going to let us go, yeah, I understand what faith is. Yeah, that's pretty much me. I'm going to move on. He's going to make us stare right in the face of several people that God is going to highlight, and he's going to highlight a certain segment of their life and say, this is what faith looks like. This is what he wants us to live by. And so today we're going to look at a trio of men. They have something in common. These are all older men who at the end of their life finished well. It's important that we finish well, isn't it? It's not just important that we start things well, that we give it a good old try and we just kind of peter off at the end of our life and we don't continue to run that race. You know, I remember that's one thing our track coach was always telling us, you don't stop running hard until 10 feet after the finish line. You keep giving it your very best shot until that finish line is crossed. We don't start slowing down as we approach the finish line. We sprint through it, don't we? Because we're remembered by how we finish, not how we begin. How many times have you watched a video where somebody who was clearly in the lead and they blew their lead all the way at the end of the race because they didn't continue to finish strong? People remember not how we ran our life or race early, but how we finished that race. I can give you several examples. I'll highlight a couple. Um, Lance Armstrong. Probably the only cyclist can you, that you can mention by name other than maybe your husband or your wife if, they, if they're a cycler. Can you really mention that many cyclists? There's not too many, but we know Lance Armstrong. Uh, won more Tour de France competitions than anybody else in history, but what do you remember most about Lance? Not how he started, but how he finished, right? Back in 2012, he was caught in a doping scandal. They took all his awards away, and that's how we remember Lance Armstrong. What about, can I, Mark, can I speak about Pete Rose? Is that okay? All right. I know Pete Rose's name is spoken with hushed tones. I myself got his autograph in fourth grade. I mean, he was, he was it. Uh, one of the, arguably one of the greatest baseball players to ever live. Uh, sadly, though, he's not remembered for his 4,256 hits. What's he remembered by? He gambled on baseball, and you don't do that. And so sadly, this man's stellar career is marred by the fact that he is the, easily the most talented player who's not in the, in the Hall of Fame. What about Mike Tyson? I don't know if you can mention his name in church or not. Is that a sin? Uh, Mike Tyson, I mean, you could pick any number of his scandals, but a man who is one of the greatest boxers to ever live, won 50 out of his 58 professional fights, 44 by knockout. But what do we remember? We remember Mike Tyson as the ear-biting fellow, right? Evander Holyfield chewed the man's ear off in the middle of a, a fight. You don't do that. I mean, do we have to teach that, that you don't chew on a guy's ear in the middle of a boxing match? But that's how we remember him. And so it's important that we finish well, not just that you're talented, not just that you ran hard for a while, but that we finished with honor and dignity, we finished this race well. Well, today we're gonna look at these three men who finished life well, and what is it that God highlights about their life? Number one, we're gonna look at Isaac. Isaac eventually accepted God's will. Now, that doesn't sound like a resounding endorsement of faith. And there's a reason for that, and we'll get to it. 
Let's look at Isaac's life, Hebrews 11, verse 20. It says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And that's all it says. Doesn't sound spectacular. It's not flashy or shiny. And there's good reason for that. Largely, the life of Isaac was an unremarkable life. There's not a whole lot that we can look at and read and say, wow, I'm gonna follow everything that this fellow did. There's not much said about him. In fact, even though he's the longest living of all the patriarchs, there's the least written about him. All the other patriarchs have about 12 chapters apiece on them. This brother got two chapters and a little bit of another. That's it. That's all we know about Isaac. In fact, the Bible records more about Isaac's failings than his successes. Isaac, remember, he lied like daddy to Abimelech, and he did these other things. He's, uh, he, wasn't, he didn't live a stellar life. It was very unremarkable. He played favorites with his children, favoring uh, the, the carnal, more carnal of his two children, Esau, over Jacob, simply because Esau you know, could make a good brisket and give it to daddy. That's, I mean, that's exactly what it is. And so he was a rather unremarkable fellow, mostly in his life. And, we, and the Bible does not focus greatly on his successes. And yet, for all of his shortcomings, God does not remember his failures or his ignominity. God remembers the fact that he lived by faith at the end of his life. And that he blessed his sons the way God wanted him to. And that's important that we acknowledge this. God praises him for something that he did at the end of his life that throughout the rest of his life he was unwilling to do. Did Isaac always want to bless Jacob? Oh, y'all skipped Sunday school, I can see. Did Isaac always want to bless Jacob? He did not, did he? He had no interest in such things. In fact, he had his favorites, and it wasn't Jacob. When we think of Jacob and Esau, we remember their birth, their twins. They're, they're born together, and what we remember about them is that they were born fighting, just like your kids and just like mine. They're born fighting, and this one kid, you know, Esau escapes the womb, before, I, or before Jacob does, and Jacob's hanging on to the heel. He's second born, but barely. And it was sort of a, a metaphor for the way his entire life was gonna be, always grasping at the heels of his brother and trying to take what belongs to him. Genesis 25, 25 says, the first came out red, and all his body was like a hairy cloak. That's Esau right there. And so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Esau's name meant hairy. He was hairy from the womb. Esau went on to become this testosterone-fueled man's man. He's one of those guys out there doing CrossFit. You've seen some of these fellows in the parking lot, and you're trying to figure out why some guy is flipping a tractor tire across there, or they lead him into a room, they release a bag of you know, rabid weasels, and they run around circles or something. Just, all these just crazy kinds of exercises they do you know, just to keep themselves fit and active. They're these men's men. You know, this is the kind of guy that would get into bushcraft and just go out into the wilderness with a knife and fashion a spear and jump out of a spear and you know, stab a boar in the back of the head kind of a guy. That's Esau. And, th and that's the one daddy liked. And then you have Jacob. Jacob hung out in the kitchen with mommy. Jacob was sort of that, you know, that skinny little kid with fair skin who didn't really like being outdoors nearly as much. Uh, his name, uh, Jacob's name itself, meant the, the one who follows and supplants, the one who tries to take over and usurp. His name means that he's a deceiver, and it defined his character and who he was. Jacob, even though he was second born, was not supposed to be the one, or was supposed to be the one, rather, that God was going to have lead this family. Esau, by tradition, was supposed to be the one to lead, isn't he? Even though he's only firstborn by a little bit, tradition says Esau should be the leader. And doggone it, if Isaac wasn't gonna make sure that that happened. But yet God wanted Jacob to lead. He says in Genesis 25, 23, the Lord said to her, Rebekah, the two nations are in your womb and two people are within you and they shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, this is a difficult thing to receive because this flies in the face of years of tradition. The older does not serve the younger. The younger serves the older. The older is the one that gets the birthright. The birthright is a double portion of the blessing, and part of that is a double portion of the inheritance because they're gonna go on and they're gonna receive the title head of family. And so the next patriarch, the one who's going to lead this family in the future, is supposed to be the eldest son. This is the way we've always done it. And yet God comes along and says, you're not gonna do it that way this time. 
Does God have a right to take decades and centuries of tradition and change it if God wants to? Can God do that? Not only can God, he's God. And so God is saying, this time, I want you to change things up a little bit. Now, don't think for a minute that Isaac was excited about God messing with centuries of tradition. He wasn't going to have it. And so he was holding fast to the fact that, no, Esau, my favorite, my chosen one, the strong guy, the one that the world would have chosen, the one that serves his daddy meat, he is going to be the one to lead. And so his dad is making a decision based upon tradition and carnal choices. This is what serves my needs best. This is what I like. So this is the way we ought to do the family. And don't think for a minute that I'm exaggerating this at all. In Genesis 25, 28, it says, Isaac loved Esau. Why? Because he ate of his game. Isaac wasn't making a spiritual decision. He was making a decision based simply upon how he saw things and what made him feel good and what was right to him. And so you have here Isaac. He's not in a place really that you want to emulate him. He's simply at this point an old man doing things his way by tradition because it makes him feel good and because it fills his belly. Can humans ever still get that way? Can we be that way where we just make decisions based upon what's good for me because I've done it this way, because it's comfortable, it's familiar, it's predictable, and I like it. So I'm gonna hold to that. I know God's word says this. Let somebody else do that. I'm gonna go it my way. And that's where we find Isaac for the vast majority of his life. Well, in Genesis chapter 27, we read about Isaac and death at this point is on his mind. He's thinking about, I'm not gonna be here forever. So you're thinking, finally, he's going to do things God's way. I mean, he's going to see God. He's going to stand before God very, very soon. So obviously, the fear of God is going to motivate him to be obedient to God, right? You would think that, but that's not how it goes. He's still going to be hardened doing things his way. Genesis chapter 27, verses 1 through 4, it says, Isaac, when he was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He says, behold, I am too, I'm old. I do not know the day of my death. In other words, I'm at the age where every day is, a, is grace. It's a gift of God. I may be dead tomorrow. I might live another 10 years, but let's make sure we lock this in. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me and prepare me delicious food. See, his flesh was still always on his mind. He's not making decisions based upon what honors God, what pleases God, what's spiritual. He's making decisions based upon the fact of he wants a good meal out of this. He says, prepare me delicious food such as I love. Notice that Isaac doesn't even have to say what that needs to look like, what kind of meat and how to prepare it. This is something that Esau had been doing for quite some time. He just says, hey, you do what you've always done. You bring me that meat that I, you know what I like. You know how I like it prepared. You bring it to daddy and daddy take care of you. I know what God said, but I'm gonna, do, I'm gonna make sure this goes through. He says, bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, does this sound like a man that we need to be praising for his faith at this point? Is this what God asked for, that God might have Isaac bless Esau? In case you skipped Sunday school, no, it's not. This doesn't sound like faith. This sounds a lot like rebellion. And by the way, that's what it is. Whenever we hold to what we want and whenever we hold to what man wants, when we know it's in direct violation of what God wants, it's not faith. It may look religious, but it's not faith, it's rebellion. And so here we have Isaac in his old age, such age that he can't even see, and he knows he's about to die, and yet he's still shaking his fist at God saying, we're gonna do it my way. It's where we find him. He didn't always do things right, but we're going to see here that through circumstances, God is going to cause Isaac to see things God's way, and Isaac will finally do something amazing. He's going to change in his old age. He's going to change and finally accept what God's words say. He's going to accept the will of God. He's going to accept what God has been telling him since his children were still in the womb. And he's going to accept that the younger will finally serve the older. Now, the way that came about wasn't right. God is not the author of the sin of, of Jacob. 
and Rebecca. You know how they got that, that blessing, by the way, right? It's that it was through trickery and manipulation and deception. God wasn't responsible for that. Man was trying to do God's will, man's way. But yet, through this, we still see that, that Jacob, putting on some hair and smelling a lot like Esau, gave him some food that mama had prepared, and he tricked daddy out of the blessing, giving it to him instead of Esau. And God's will was done, even though man sinned to do it. Well, there we see Isaac's statement of faith in Genesis 27, 37. Esau is gonna come back in the room and say, behold, dad, here's the meal I've prepared. I've killed it. I've done exactly what you wanted. It's time to bless me. And, and Jacob, or Esau, Isaac rather says this. Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him, Jacob, supplanter, deceiver. I have made him Lord over you and all of his brothers I've uh, all of his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? He finally resigns and accepts the will of God. Clearly, there is nothing I can do to go against the will of God. When God wants something done, he is sovereign and I'm not. And even though I can connive and plot and live rebelliously against God, God's will is still gonna take place. And he finally accepts that by faith, and he doesn't try to overturn this. He resigns to doing the will of God, proving that it's never too late to begin to live by faith and do things God's way and not our own. And so rebellious as he was, God praises him for taking that difficult step of faith in old age when it went against what he wanted, and God praises him for this faith. He didn't live well, but he died well. It's like Darth Vader, Star Wars. Remember him? Started out as a guy named Anakin Skywalker. By the way, I'm not ruining a 40-year-old movie for anybody, am I? Okay, so statute of limitations is gone. We can move forward with this. Nobody's mad. Uh, so Star Wars, when I was a kid, there were only three at that time. Episodes four, five, and six. Makes sense of that. And so you had this guy, and he's Anakin Skywalker, who, be, who is this good kid who was raised up to walk in the light, but he didn't walk in the light. He decided to get fleshly and carnal, and he went after fleshly human attachment. He wasn't supposed to, and he marries Padme, and they get married, and they have kids, and, uh, and his life just goes downhill from there. I'm not making commentary, but that was Darth Vader's life. And at that point, though, he wants to save her life because she's dying in childbirth, and he wants, to, he wants this secret to immortality, and he's gonna go about it his way. And then pretty soon you see him doing very dark things for a light guy. You see him killing off a bunch of mummies with sticks, the sand people. You see him do all kinds of unspeakable things with these younglings. It's not pretty what Darth Vader does. And he's killing people. And even at the, the end of the third movie, which is actually the sixth episode, but it's the third movie, Darth Vader is ready to kill his own son, Luke Skywalker. This is a dark fellow and the emperor's there and he's hitting them with lightning and all this crazy stuff and eventually, Darth Vader decides, you know what? This isn't how I want to end my life. And we see him in his heart starting to turn to that light side as, as Luke is preaching truth to him as a prophet. And he picks up the emperor and throws him in the pit, the same pit where every bad guy goes and they're still falling eternally for this day. Uh, he throws him in the pit and he ends his life well. He takes off his helmet and he's dying. He can barely breathe. Uh, but he, he, he speaks words of blessing over his son. He returns to good and he finishes life well. Moments later, we see him in Jedi heaven and he's standing there in spirit form with Yoda and Obi-Wan and, and everybody's cheering, you know, as all the little stuffed animals, you know, celebrate the Ewoks or whatever you call them. Uh, that was Vader's life. He, he didn't live his life very well, but he ended it well. And in the movie, he is remembered that way. And in, a, in the very same way, we have Isaac. He didn't live his life well. He lived it very unremarkably. God didn't have a whole lot to write about him and what he did write wasn't that good. And even at the very end of his life, he was still living in rebellion against God until he finally came to a place of accepting God's will and saying, you know what, not my will, but yours be done. And it's for that that God praises him and includes him in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. And so it's important that we finish well. Number two, we see Jacob. Jacob passed faith on to his descendants. Our next guy, Jacob, we remember him, right? The, the cheat, the supplanter, the deceiver, these are not things that you want to be, these aren't the nicknames that you want as a kid, the deceiver, the supplanter, but that's what he got. Um, he cheated Esau out of a birthright. 
He cheats Esau out of this paternal blessing at the end of his, at the end of his life. And right after he does that, he goes on and lives his life. He's hoping he's never going to see Esau again. But behold, Genesis 32, he does see Esau again. And it's an awkward moment for him. It's sort of like if you, theoretically, were to enter into a church business meeting and things got hot. Can things ever happen in church business meetings where they get hot? And maybe you lost your temper at somebody and you go out to... Kroger afterward, and you're going to get yourself a half gallon of ice cream because that's what we do on Sunday nights. And, and you go out, and you're making your way to the ice cream aisle, and behold, who do you see at Kroger? You see the guy that you were chewing out in the business meeting. And you don't want to face him. And so you duck down the nearest aisle trying to pretend that you were very interested in, oh, I'm in the liquor aisle. Yeah, I was, what am I here for? You know, you try to pretend that's where you wanted to be because you didn't want to face him because you know you just wronged this fellow. That's Jacob with Esau in Genesis 32. He's about to encounter his brother, the one that he has stolen everything from. The birthright, the blessing, took his sack lunch. That's Jacob. He took it all. Well, Jacob meets up with Esau, and what he does is he sends gifts before him. He sends an entourage of people here bringing gifts to Esau. These are from your brother Jacob. And then he sends uh, on another time, he sends his own family on camelback. Here, go see this brother. He's trying to soften the blow. And eventually we find Jacob, and he's just kind of hanging out by himself, thinking to himself, how am I going to face Esau again after all that I've done to him? And it is in that moment in Genesis 32 that Jacob has an encounter with Jesus Christ. The reason I say Jesus Christ is because we have uh, a pre-incarnate Jesus a God, not simply an angel, we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, visit with him and he wrestles with God all night long. You remember that encounter? He wrestles with God. Now, in that you're wrestling with God, God could have ended it at any time, but God didn't. God wanted this wrestling to take place. He wanted Jacob to strive with God. He wanted Jacob to seek from God the blessing instead of trying to seek it from man to trust in God for the blessing, not to try to cheat my brother, not to try to trick my dad, but I'm finally going to the source. I'm doing what I should have done all along and seeking the blessing from God, and he's doing that. And for that, God is going to bless him. By the way, unless there's any of you still thumbing through your Bible trying to figure out whether or not it was actually an angel, because the Bible uses that term, uh, that he was fighting with, understand that an angel, angelos in the Greek, just means a messenger. It's someone who's speaking on behalf of God, like Jesus came down to speak the words of God to us. Also understand that uh, in verse 28 of Genesis 32, the being that he's wrestling with says, you have striven with God. Jacob himself in Genesis 32, 30 says, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So don't think this was simply an angel that he's wrestling with. He's wrestling with against God, and God allowed him to do it for a time to seek the blessing from God like he should have done in the beginning. Wrestle with God deeply in prayer, Jacob, and trust that God is going to give you the birthright and give you the blessing. And so this is what God praises him for. And after he wrestles with God all night long, God does something very special for him. What is it? He changes his name from Jacob, the deceiver, the supplanter, to Israel. Israel, the one who contends or fights with El, Elohim, God. That's what Israel means, the one who contends or fights with God. It reminds him of that day, that life-changing transformation experience where he's going to live by God in faith in him and not faith in what I can do. It's a picture of our own experience with God. Every one of us, we're born into this world, Jacobs, aren't we? We're born to this world, sinners. The Bible says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, sin is upon us. It identifies us. We're not just a good person who, who lies. We're liars. We're not just a good person who takes things once in a while. We're thieves. We're identified before God as a sinner, and there is no plea before him but guilty. We're all born to this world, Jacobs, but we all must have a life-changing encounter with God where we wrestle with him in prayer and God takes a hold of our heart and causes us to bow our knee and to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. And from that moment on, he gives us a new name too, doesn't he? We sang about it this morning. I have a new name written down for me in glory. We read about it in Revelation 2.17. 
that God has a new name upon which nobody knows it. But upon this stone, this, 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 if you will, ticket into this eternal celebration, God has given us a new name. He has changed us. We are no longer sinner, but saint. Rejoice in that, friends, that all the sins that you've done, when you've come to Jesus and you have wrestled with him in prayer and you have wrestled with him and you have surrendered your life to him, you have believed that in the message of the gospel, you have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Bible says you will be saved. And from that moment on, God has given you a new name and a new future and your past is gone. There's no more feeling guilty about these things because the guilt is not there. If we're still feeling shame about things that we did years ago as kids, that shame isn't coming from God, it's coming from Satan. He wants us to live in that shame and that darkness and never move on and serve our God. But God lifts our head, he gives us a new name, and he gives us a new future. Well, for what does God praise this converted man, Jacob, in Hebrews 11? It's for, for taking that faith and passing it on, that blessing to his children and grandchildren. Hebrews eleven twenty one says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So here we have Jacob. We know that he's almost dead because the Bible says while dying. We know that he's very weak because in, even while he's worshiping, how is he doing so? He's leaning over the head of his staff. This is an old man. This is a man with a cane. This is a man with a walker. If they had oxygen tanks back then, he'd have an oxygen tank with him. He is, he is only, he's at the end of his life. And so even in, at the end of his life, weak though his body may be, he's still worshiping God, and there's one thing that he's concerned about, not simply that he worships God himself, but he did something. He blessed each of the sons of Joseph. What this is, is he's making sure that this faith that has been his, this faith that he's lived out ever since that conversion experience and God changed his name, he wants to make sure that his children and his grandchildren are following in the way of God. In fact, if you want to hear what this blessing sounded like, Genesis chapter 48, verses three through four says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said, behold, I will make you fruitful and I'll multiply you and I will make you a great company of peoples and I will give you this land to your offspring and for after you for an everlasting possession. Now, what I just read there, the blessing that God praises him for in Hebrews that blessing, what does that blessing sound a lot like when he's talking to, you know, to Joseph and his kids? What is that blessing? When he promises that God has a land that he wants to give you, he has blessing, <clears throat> and he has the seed of children that will come on through you and make you a mighty nation. What does that sound an awful lot like? Abraham. It's the Abrahamic covenant. He's taking this message you know, hundreds of years old, he's, he's taking this, this promise given to Abraham, which never came true in their lifetime, but yet he believed the word of God enough to pass it on to others. And so at the end of his life, when he's so weak, he has to lean on his staff to worship God and to bless others. When he's about to die, he is faithful unto death. And the one thing that's on his mind is, kids, I want you to follow God. Grandkids, you need to keep following God. Continue to trust that, that good old word, that old rugged cross message. You continue to trust that ancient word given to us, passed on through our father Abraham. Keep trusting in him. His one concern is that his kids would continue to follow in the faith. You have to remember why that's so important. Where is Israel at the point of time where he is blessing them? They're not in Israel, are they? They're not in the promised land. Genesis chapter 47 reminds us in verse 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. Did God promise Abraham the land of Egypt? Y'all failed Sunday school, didn't you? He did not promise them Egypt, did he? He promised them that promised land of Israel, where we have Israel today. That was the land that God promised to them and their children, their generations. It's not Egypt. And so he passes that message on to Joseph and his grandkids, and then he does it through a really awkward oath that neither Joseph nor the grandkids would ever forget. Genesis 47, 29, he says, when the time drew near that Israel must die, Israel, right, remember who that is? 
Jacob, okay. When Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me, that you're going to continue to live out under the blessing of God and continue to pursue the Abrahamic covenant. Make this vow to me and put your hand under my thigh. Now that is a very solemn oath. Now, when he says, put your hand under my thigh, it's a very polite way of referring to his loins, his reproductive region, okay? And so he had him there, and it was a reminder that of the Abrahamic covenant, that God has promised him land, seed, and blessing. It's a, it's a place of a man's posterity. All of his seed and his ancestors and those who would come before him proceeds from here. You're going to make a vow right here, and you're never going to forget this. Trust me, if they had you read your daddy's will like that, you would never forget what your dad said in his will. Glad we don't do that no more. But this is what he did. It's a very solemn oath. It's a very serious oath. You're going to listen. Now, we ourselves, we might place like our hand over our hearts or something if we want to indicate submission to authority or uh, uh, an identification with what's being said here. So with this thigh oath that's, being, that's taking place, we read here, Genesis 47, 30, he says, do not bury me in Egypt. This land that we're in right now, this isn't the promised land. This is not where we're supposed to be. I want you to trust in the eternal words of God, and I want you to, I want you to remember, don't bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Now, you need to understand how difficult a thing this was that Israel was doing with his son Joseph right now. Egypt, in those days, for all practical purposes, was like the United States. It was a rich land, a land that grew plenteous crops. Uh, it, was a, it was the strongest military might in the world. If you got in trouble with another country, the temptation was not necessarily to go to God, but to go to Egypt. Egypt will get me out of this. Egypt is the strong one. Egypt will be my savior. Egypt also was the one that was one of the wealthiest nations in the world, most powerful empire at that time. There's a reason that Israel's in Egypt right now. The entire world, remember, was starving to death, and they all came to Egypt. And so this is the land of plenty. This is the land of power. This is the land of influence. This is the land of security and might and safety. This is the land you wanted to be. Egypt was the land that you wish you could settle in because it's so much better than where you came from. That was Egypt. And here Israel's saying, you don't belong here. This isn't your land. You need to take them out of this land. It would be like somebody here immigrating to the United States from a very, very difficult, war-torn, poverty-stricken, famine-ridden area, and they came to the United States. And by this time, by the way, Joseph has been here 117 years in Egypt. And so he's got kids and things that all they've ever known is the goodness of Egypt. And mind you, they're in a position of power right now, aren't they? Joseph is like the second in command here in the entire country. They have tremendous power and influence and money. They're living in a, in a wonderful land of Goshen. This is great. Why wouldn't we want to stay here forever? Because that's not your land. And Israel's greatest concern here as he's about to die is not that he passes on this, that his children and his grandchildren grow up to be successful in Egypt. It's that they remember the promises of God and stay faithful to him. That's the most important thing to Israel on his mind when he's dying. Stay faithful to God. And so he reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant. And so the hand on a thigh was a reminder of, of the generations to come. Remember and stay faithful to the promises of God. Joseph, with your hand under my thigh here, I want you to remember, you're going to stay distinct. Everybody else, they can worship Ra and Sekhmet and all these other Egyptian gods, but you're gonna stay faithful to the one true God. There may be some who want to stay in the land of Egypt and live it up and live the good life with their earthly life, but not you. You're going to remind folks that we don't belong here, that we belong in a different land. You remember that, Joseph. Now take your hand off my thigh. Okay. That was the promise there. You're not going to forget this. This is important because you can tell what's important to an individual by what we pass on to our kids. What matters most to a person it's not what you say is important to you, it's what you pass on to your kids. Why? Because you pass on to your kids what's most important to you. Most of us, you know, if we, if we teach our children that you have to go to school every day, like it or not, you have to try hard every day, like it or not, you have to do your homework every day, like it or not, what have we communicated to our child? That academic success is absolutely essential for your future. 
If we tell our child, you're gonna be stay faithful, and, and these are not bad things. You're gonna stay faithful to this sport. You started it, you're gonna finish it. And you're gonna do well, and you're gonna excel, and you're going to give, make your body strong, and you're gonna eat right. And I'm gonna make you eat your Brussels sprouts, and your broccoli, and your, your steamed chicken. What have we taught our children? That physical health is important to your future success or that achievement is important to your future success. And these are important things. But what if we don't teach our children to go to church whether you like it or not? What if we read our children from you know, these, these fun children's storybooks but we never read the Bible? What if we talk to our kids about the ABCs and the birds and the bees but we never talk to, them, talk to God with them in prayer? What if we make them go to school every day without failing and never miss a day of work, but we don't make them come to church and prioritize that over things? Has that also sent a message to our children? We've sent the message loud and clear that this is not essential to your future success. You see, we don't teach things to our kids. We don't force them to do things that aren't essential for their future success. How many of you guys have taught your children how to milk a cow by hand? Let me see the hands. Okay. That's exactly zero people that I can see in our congregation. Why aren't you teaching your kids how to milk cows by hand? Because it's not essential to their future success. Now, once upon a time, it was, wasn't it? Every family had the cow, they had their pig, they had their chickens, and you needed to know how to you know, milk and pluck and cut and butcher and all these things because it's essential to feed your family well. But now we got Kroger. We don't got to do that anymore. Okay? So you're not teaching your kids how to milk a cow. What have you now communicated to your child? Milking cows is not essential for your future success. And that's true. But if we're also not discipling our children, we're sending them the same message. God and serving him and being an active part of the church and serving and giving and loving and learning and teaching and leading others, this is not important for your future success. And don't think that our kids haven't gotten the message. Lifeway, uh, the Southern Baptist arm of our publications and once upon a time had a lot of bookstores. They did a survey a while back of 18 to 22 year olds and asked them this, how many of you between the ages of 18 and 22 completely walked away from God for at least a full year, a year where you didn't go to church one time, you didn't read your Bible, you didn't pray, you just walked out on God for at least a full year and many of them not even coming back to God at all. How many of them did that affect, do you think? Remember, these are our kids. Southern Baptist kids going to Southern Baptist churches, good churches. How many do you think? 70%. 70% of our children got the message that God is not essential for their future success. Where did they get that idea? The same reason that they don't milk cows. We didn't pass it on. And so God is praising He's praising Israel here for desiring at the end of his life to make sure that his children and grandchildren are passing on the things that are most essential for their future success, their eternal success, and that is the priority of God. You see, life isn't just a race, even though the Bible compares it to that. Life is a relay. Life is a race, but it is a relay. If you've ever, ever run track, I did run track when I was about 60 pounds lighter. I ran track and I enjoyed it for what it was. It didn't take any skill. You just had to work really hard. But then they put me in a relay and it wasn't just enough that Heath ran a really hard race. I had to learn how to run well with others. You see, relay races are won and lost in the baton pass. You're running and you got this little hollow tube, right? And you're coming up and you're running hard and there's a guy that you guys as a team have lined up at a certain time at a certain place and you're going to run up to him and as you're approaching him, what does that person start to do? They start to run the race with you and for a period of time, you're running the exact same speed and as you're running the same speed, you take that baton and you place it in their hands and you don't just let go. We don't just run our race and come and we drop the baton and say, well, it's up to you guys now. I'm gonna sit and just enjoy myself. We make sure that the next person firmly has a grasp on that baton and only then do we finally let go. We begin to slow down and then we can sit down on the grass and watch the rest of them and cheer them on. And that's what life is. It's not important, it's not good enough, parents, that you're a godly person. It's not enough. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, the things that I've entrusted to you in, in the presence of many witnesses, 
You need to pass on to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we're not just looking at this generation, we're teaching this generation to teach the next generation. It's what Israel's doing here with Joseph. He is talking to Joseph and to his grandkids. So it's not enough that we're godly people. If we aren't passing this on to another generation, the people who are coming beyond us and training them to pass it on to the next generation, friends, we have failed in our job of discipling. It's not just about us becoming mature and godly before him. It's not just about us living a good life. We pass it on to our kids and our grandkids. And in the church context, even if you have no kids, we pass it on to this generation and we teach this generation to lead the next generation. And so I wanna ask you this, friends. Every one of you who are running for Jesus, you have a baton in your hand. Who's holding your baton? Who are you passing that on to? Who are you personally discipling? You say, well, I'm not a teacher. You don't have to be to pass on what's important. You don't have to be a, a licensed teacher to teach your kids and read them how to, you know, teach them how to read books. You don't have to be a licensed teacher to, to do math flashcards with your kids in that same way. You don't have to be an ordained pastor to disciple people. You simply have to pass on the things that have been given to you and you have to be willing to give it to other people. If we don't do that, friends, Christianity dies out. And this is why God praises Israel, because he is committed to the relay, not just to running a good race himself. Number three, we're going to see Joseph here. He trusted God, not his circumstances. I could, I could have highlighted anything in Joseph's life. The man lived a very remarkable life. But uh, I could have highlighted any number of things. But what I want to point out is, is the fact that circumstantially, he shouldn't have trusted God. But he did. Read here in uh, Hebrews eleven twenty two. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, leaving that land of plenty, leaving Egypt. And he gave directions concerning his bones. And so Joseph here clearly got the message from Israel. We don't belong here and we need to go. And so Joseph also gives directions concerning his bones. Yes, he had a job and responsibilities there in Egypt, but Israel wasn't supposed to stay there. Well, how did Joseph exhibit faith? Circumstantially, when we look at Joseph's life, everything said, God can't be trusted, God doesn't like you. Think about Joseph's life. He grows up and he has a pretty decent life at first, has the coat of many colors and things, but then God starts giving him dreams. By the way, you're gonna rule over your brothers. He's not the oldest, by the way. You're gonna rule over your brothers, even over your own father. And it's, none of them really like to hear that message. None of us like the concept of being ruled over in any respect because humans, we tend to be fairly self-willed and independent. And so they didn't like this fellow very much. And so the brothers eventually, uh, they get jealous of this fellow they decide they're gonna kill him. Uh, one of the brothers got a conscience and said, now, let's make a couple bucks off this. Let's sell him to slavers. Let's just put some animal blood here on this robe and let's give that to daddy and tell him animals got him. And so they did. And they sold him off into slavery. And he goes down and he is sent to Egypt and he's bought by a man named Potiphar. But Joseph doesn't give up on his faith in God. He continues to serve Potiphar faithfully and so well that Potiphar puts his whole house under Joseph's hand. So well-respected was Joseph as a slave, Potiphar's own wife became attracted to him and made advances to him. But yet Joseph wasn't gonna do like any Egyptian would have done. Joseph is still following God, and Joseph fled that scene. But for doing the right thing, he gets punished. And Potiphar's wife, embarrassed at the whole encounter, accuses him of rape. And so Joseph is sent to prison. You think in prison there, Joseph would be reconsidering his faith in God. God, why are you letting me go through this? But he doesn't. Joseph stays faithful to God. In fact, he becomes so respectable in the prison, it's like Otis Campbell, man. They're giving him the keys of the prison there. You're gonna, be, you're gonna take over here. You're such a valuable fellow. In fact, even in prison, he's still following God faithfully. How do we know? Because when some fellows, they've got these dreams, God gives Joseph the interpretation of these dreams. Remember the butcher baker than candlestick maker? That was a different poem, by the way. So I want to see if you're still awake. Okay, remember, you got these servants of Pharaoh and they get these dreams and Joseph interprets these dreams. One of them didn't end too well for him, but the other one, he went back into the service of the Pharaoh and then promptly forgets Joseph. 
what is this, God? I do your will. I, I interpret these dreams. I'm doing well, and yet you still forget me, and I'm languishing here in this prison. Everything is screaming out to Joseph, God forgot you. God doesn't love you. God forgot you. Why don't you forget God? Why don't you curse God and die? But he doesn't. Instead, he's an example of faith for us all, that when we go through hard times, one of your kids starts bowing up, one of your kids starts going south on you, one, uh, maybe you get cancer, or maybe uh, someone in your family passes away, you lose a baby, you lose your house, you lose a job. We're tempted to think God no longer cares about me because God let bad things happen to me. Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph has the worst possible things you can imagine happen to him, and he still faithfully trusts God. He doesn't let his circumstances change who he is. And God praises that as an act of faith, that I'm not going to look at my surroundings for my doctrine of God, what I believe to be true about him. I'm going to look to God himself. And God praises him in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 says, at the end of his life, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That's pretty significant for a man, by the way, who's second in power in Egypt. He's not giving up this, he's, he's willing to give up this power and this wealth and this prosperity to do what God wants him to do. He, in Genesis 50, verse 24, it says, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Where have we heard that before? He's passing the baton. This is the Abrahamic covenant again. Remember, guys, God didn't promise us a happy life here in Egypt. He wants us to live for the land that's to come, the land that he has promised us, the land of the Abrahamic covenant, the land of God's word and of God's blessing. At the end of his life, this is what's on his mind. And so he ignores his, these circumstances. He ignores the difficult life that God allowed him to leave. And at the end of his life, he's still faithful to God. And he's actually encouraging his family, you leave this land of plenty, this land of security and safety and comfort. And I want you to take my bones out of here. Even though I'm one of the most powerful, wealthy, famous guys in Egypt, I don't want to be associated with Egypt. I'm an Israelite. And so when you go out, I want you to take me out with you. He finished well. And so this is how God chooses to remember Joseph's life, that he finished well. This is how we all want to be remembered, that we finish life well, that we finish strong. You know, sometimes I wonder how I'm going to be remembered. I've done a lot of funerals, and they haven't always been pretty. I've done a lot of funerals just since I've gotten here, and they haven't all been pretty. I get some funerals where the family members are like, let's just get it over with. We just want to get this done. Make it as short as possible. Those were my instructions. Do you have any order of service or anything? No, just whatever you do is fine. I've gotten those directions here. I've done funerals before where nobody wants to do, uh, nobody wants to speak on behalf of the departed. Nobody wants to read the obituary. Nobody wants to get involved. It's sad. I was talking to my brothers a few weeks back and we, had re we were just kind of, old family memories were coming up and we remembered some older lady that was there when we went to church as a little kid. And I just, all of a sudden, for what, I do this sometimes. I, I remember a name from my past. I'm like, I wonder where they are today. And so I looked it up and sadly, this lady had departed and I found her obituary online. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, it's the saddest obituary I ever read. It haunts me to this day. Now I will change her name and all the details so you don't know who this is, but I'm, otherwise I'm going to read this obituary verbatim. Simply said, Wilma Jones, 86, of Charles City, Iowa, died Tuesday, January 4th, at Faith Medical Center. Arrangements are incomplete at Smith Funeral Home. Don't wait any longer. There's no more to it. You say, well, it's incomplete. They're going to finish that. It was written in 2011, 12 years ago, and nobody cared enough to write anything about this lady. Just nothing is said, nothing about her faith or anything else. Well, it's not any better for a lot of us. A lot of obituaries that I end up reading, it's just the kind of prerequisite stuff. Here's when they died, maybe how they died. Here's the people they left behind. And then it'll say a few words about maybe their life. And here's what they're known for. They summarize their life with, he was a fan of the University of Kentucky. Yeah. And that's it. No, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, 
go blue. There's nothing wrong with that. But is that really the only thing that you wanna be known for? Is that your legacy? That you were a rabid fanboy of of, of the University of Kentucky? Is that your legacy? Or sometimes it'll just say, you know, they left, they left behind all these different people and they sure loved their pet schnauzer, you know, Sir Barks a lot. You know, and that, that's my legacy. That I left behind this sweet little dog that I love to death. And then that's it. And then we all go home and we, you know, we, you know, go eat out and grab some pizza after the funeral. Is there nothing that will be mentioned of our faith? But you know, even if man doesn't remember what we did, I, want, I just want to wonder, what is God going to speak about my faith? Is there anything about my life that God will look at that and say that this man lived by faith? Will God speak of me as he did some of these three men speak about at all the way to the end of their age when they could barely even hold themselves up and they're trembling on the edge of a staff, they're still worshiping God and they're still passing on the truth and knowledge of God to the generations behind me? What will God say about me? And so I simply say all of this to say, friends, finish well. Wherever you find yourself in life, maybe you've not really lived a life of faith. Maybe you've lived a very tepid Christian life. You're a lot like Isaac. You've just kind of lived for yourself. You've kind of done your thing. You know what God wants, but you're gonna do it your way. And you've kind of lived most of your life that way. Do you know it's never too late to start living by faith and to have God stamp your life approved? For, to have God say, this person finished well? I pray that God will say that about each one of us, that we will live by faith and seek the commendation of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today for this time in Hebrews 11 as we've watched these three men finish out in a godly way. They all went through their struggles and their trials. But in the end, God, they followed you and were faithful to death. And you choose to record them in Hebrews 11 in this hall of faith of those who finished well. Lord, may that be said of each soul who's here today that we finish well, that we run this relay, that we take this baton that is firmly in our hand, we pass this gospel baton onto a generation who will pass it on to a generation. And Lord, there may be some here today who've, who've not begun to run the race at all. They're not believers or they don't know that they are. I pray that today, God, they might take some time out and they would reflect upon their heart and they might do like Jacob did and just wrestle with you to have an encounter with Jesus Christ who will then change their name from sinner to saint. Reveal to them the truth that we're all born sinners, the truth that Jesus came as God in the flesh to live the life we could not, to die in our place, and that as God, his sacrifice was infinite to cover an infinite number of sins for an infinite number of people for infinite time. I pray they'd receive that message with joy today. We ask this in Christ's name. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.